worked so far, but we're not out yet. I wanna know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I wanna know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and today's episode will be a little different than our usual fare. We're still talking about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe, but we're also talking about the stories behind the stories. I teamed up recently with Gooey Fame, co-host of the Existence is Futile podcast, to start a new show. It's called Backtrekking, and every week on the podcast, we look at the real-world inspirations for classic Trek episodes, be they other movies or TV shows, real-world events, scientific breakthroughs, you name it. It's a fun and fascinating look at where your trek comes from, and I suggest that you give it a listen. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you wait for about two minutes, you can hear it right now. This week, we're running the debut episode of Backtracking, where we look at the TNG episode Starship Mine and the movie that inspired it, Die Hard. So stick around and check that out. You can also find us on Twitter at at Backtrekking. That's B-A-C-K-T-R-E-K-K-I-N-G. Follow Enterprising Individuals on Twitter at at EISTpod. Join our Facebook group, Enterprising Interlocutions, and sign up to be a crew member of the show at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod for extra content. Hope you enjoy the show. We had a lot of fun making it, and we'll be returning to our regularly scheduled programming next week. And now, Backtrekking. Hey, welcome everybody to Backtrekking, the podcast where we look back at the real-world inspirations behind classic episodes of Star Trek. I'm one of your hosts, you can call me Caliban, and your other host is right here. Hey, it's me, Gooey Fame. It's Gooey Fame. I'm your other host. <laughs> We're part of the Analog Legends Podcast Network, home to the best entertainment from the pre-digital age. Analog Legends has many shows about your favorite geeky topics like Star Trek on our show, Star Wars, classic video games and movies. You can find out more at, at Analog Legends on Twitter. Gooey, give the people a taste of who you are and what your background is. I'm Gooey Fame. Uh, I, and I'm here to say, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I'm a podcaster. I suppose if that's a title you can give yourself, um, it is today. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I've earned my stripes yet, but uh, I host uh, pro wrestling required viewing, a pro wrestling podcast, uh, virtual theater, which is a podcast about video game movies. Uh, come from existence is futile. Uh, Star Trek podcast where we uh, watched um, Star Trek: The Next Generation, yeah, and uh, you know I'm a I'm a Star Trek fan, and I'm here to say, <laughs> uh, yeah. I love that you you go right to existence is futile. It's not like is that is that is there supposed to be a, an undercurrent of ennui in your in your program? 
Oh, like some sort of set, like not sadness, but it just sounds like, yeah, it sounds like a French perfume commercial or something like that in a good way, of course. You know, I think we were just trying to capture the uh, we wanted people to know we were millennials uh, <laughs> by the title and, you know, just let you know people feel the, the feeling of now and. <laughs> I think it comes through. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I yeah, the, the zeitgeist and many other terms, yeah. Uh as for me, I'm a writer, editor and film reviewer and I'm a podcaster myself. I run a podcast network called Just Enough Trope and you can find out more about that on Twitter at, at @justenoughtrope or at justenoughtrope.com. And we're talking about Star Trek, of course, on this show and Star Trek is classic Sure. I mean, the whole franchise started in 1966. But like when we talk about classic, you know, I was realizing recently, even the kind of thing that you cover on your show, Next Generation, that's kind of classic now. That took place a little while ago. Right. I guess it's funny, like watching back the beginning, too, because it it really does feel like. Does it feel aged like... when you watch it? Yeah, def- definitely. I yeah. um for this episode, I, you know, I watched a you know, later season episode compared to the first season. And it felt totally different. Like it, that didn't feel as aged for sure. Yeah. But it's, it's weird. Cause the first season feels both aged, but also at the same time, it still has that feeling of like, here's the new crew. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it's like yeah. new and old at the same time. There's a timeless quality that I think creeps in as the show goes on. But yeah, you look at some of those early episodes and it's like, some of the hair and some of the makeup and it puts it like smack dab, you know, in the middle of the eighties where it is. Right. Is yeah. Even like I was noticing some of the set design, like it's like, Oh, this looks like old. It looks like the early nineties or something, but it also looks <laughs> timeless. It like you said it best. Timeless was right. Yeah. <laughs> At least that's what I'm hoping because uh, I remember watching those uh, when they were on TV before. <laughs> so maybe I'm timeless too. What's your background with Trek? Um, so uh, as a as a as a young child, I I didn't really watch it a lot. It's something that uh, my dad would watch. He'd like watch a lot of a lot of sci-fi. He'd watch Star Trek and Buffy and. Um, and he would watch Stargate. Okay. But uh, I don't, you know, I, I was always just kind of like peripheral because I liked, I liked cartoons and stuff when I was a kid. And I always <laughs> thought like, this is like, this is like not for me. It's like, it's too grown up. I, I don't understand it. You had a cool dad though. I mean, he was watching a lot of sci-fi and stuff. Yeah. I I'm always thought sorry, it was... Sorry, you know, I'm using cool in quotes here. <laughs> well, I always thought it was kind of strange because I'm from a small town and he's kind of you're he's like your typical like small town guy you know he's yeah uh yeah he's and i was like i always just thought it was strange that he liked science fiction but he loves it so uh, that's cool to me my dad like i don't know i don't think i've ever seen him sit down and watch more than 10 minutes of tv but whenever i would watch it because i watched a lot uh including star trek when i was a kid whenever he would like walk by he'd be like Oh yeah, this is the thing with the the monkey, and he jumps in the thing, and, the thing. and he he knew <laughs> he always knew whatever I was watching, uh, unless it was something like you know totally new or like rock and wrestling, something that he would never watch. Like he always knew the classic movies and stuff. And I have no idea like when he had the time to cram all this stuff in, but I think he passed that sort of pop culture vacuum uh, technique onto me because I feel like now I'm the person that walks by and goes, oh yeah, it's so and so. 
Yeah, I feel like I I totally feel like I inherited a similar thing from my dad, but it, it just like he's he doesn't seem like that type of person, so it's kind of odd. But what <laughs> what really I didn't get into Star Trek until like like I was in high school, uh, class of '09 here, and uh, sure. I had a friend who whose uncle was super into Star Trek, and he had like models of all the ships around his house, uh, like. A little too much. It was a little much. Um, but uh, we he took us to see. We went all went together and watched the the first JJ movie, and I that actually didn't even do it. I was like, yeah, it was fun, but it was right around that time where they they added those to all the old series to Netflix when that was first launching. Right, and uh, I all of the memories of my dad watching it like were you know burned into my memory and I would just see it there on the screen like the preview screen and I was like oh I gotta watch this now yeah. so this is about 10 years ago now when they did that and I I just like binged all the shows so yeah that's so you, yeah you were truly born in the digital age as a as a Trek fan then yeah yeah it's amazing totally. we got one okay all right well I'm gonna keep an eye on you I um before all that digital stuff in Netflix we had a thing called syndication where a show would be on TV at first and then after it was on TV, it would get sold to, uh, you know, regional stations, UHF stations, kids ask your parents. And so that's how you'd watch <laughs> I Love Lucy or you'd watch old Star Trek episodes. And when TNG first came on, the whole plan was they didn't have a network. You know, this is before Paramount created the UPN network. And so it was just sold to these stations that were higher up the dial in the double digits. And so that's the kind of thing you come home from school. There's a Simpsons rerun. There's a, probably a Seinfeld rerun, and then there's some little Star Trek. And so that's kind of how I got most of my Star Trek, being definitively not a millennial, somewhat older than you. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's a pretty authentic experience right there, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, I've talked to people who are older than me, uh, and it's pretty much, you know, the same thing. I think the amount of people, at least uh, walking briskly around that, watch the show in first run is getting getting smaller and smaller it was, it was a while ago now right i've always felt like a poser because you know <laughs> I, like i had the opportunity to watch it when it was on when yeah. i was like eight years old or something but i was just like that's just some weird show my dad likes you know <laughs> <laughs> uh well as old as it is you know the more i watch trek and i've watched quite a bit at this point it becomes clear to me that like any other art form or medium Trek is a reaction to the time in which it's created. It's not like we're still, yeah, we're dealing with racial issues, but the like, civil rights isn't at the fore like it was on the original series. You know, the kinds of issues and things that we're dealing with in the real world get explored on your TV screen, especially in genre entertainment through metaphor and allegory. And it's social issues, but it also encompasses technology, you know, both what we want to see from future technology, but also some people's fears about you know how their world is is changing uh through yeah. technology yeah i always like that's what drew me to it too when i when i got into it was specifically the politics of it like and, and i was very i mean i still am very politically motivated by you know i like have a lot of interest in that stuff but definitely as a 19 year old you know very angsty and the show even <laughs> even <is> futile <laughs> <laughs> even even like next gen or whatever at the time being a couple like a decade old or whatever 
couple decades old, it was still like speaking to me, you know, even though some of it was not speaking to that specific time period. Yeah, yeah. And Trek covers so much stuff too, even like indirectly, just the fact that they can go all over the universe. Now you've got this idea that, you know, travel shrinks the world for them just as it does for us. And it brings you into contact with strangers who have different customs and different values and the science aspect, you know, there's the fear of weapons, genetic manipulation, AI, all things that were science fiction when the show first started, but are quickly becoming a reality for us. I mean, we've got this uh, mad industrialist who's making flamethrowers and handing them out to everybody. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Watch out for that. So that's what the show is really about. Uh, we'll be looking at the real world events and philosophies and technologies that inspire the stories of the Star Trek universe. And this can be, you know, original series, TOS Trek, TNG, you know, even going forward to Discovery. You know, we'll, we'll cover it all. The movies, we want to do a comprehensive look at it. We've got a podcast time machine so we can jump around whenever. We're not just stuck with beehive hairdos and bad teeth in the 60s. Uh, do you have a favorite era of Trek yourself? Personally, I like the like the crossover era of TNG and D Deep Space Nine. Yeah. That's yeah. just because that's when I started getting back into it. It was first Next Gen, and then I watched Deep Space Nine, and that became my favorite, and that's kind of stayed my favorite. And then it was like, you know, I knew I knew the uh, the original series, but uh, it was that was more of a, that was harder to go back to when TNG was the baseline, you know? Yeah. How about you? Well, I don't want to like totally copy you, but I'd probably say <laughs> that uh, academically, yeah, I, like when Trek was really clicking near the end of TNG, DS9's picking up and Voyager's on the way, like they just really knew what they were doing. And it was like a, it felt like a, like in the way that people look at like the Marvel Cinematic Universe today, where you can just watch one film and you know it's got, it's its own thing, but it's got connections to other films and you feel like you're kind of watching this ongoing thing. That's how Trek felt at that time. Yeah. So I would pick that uh, on the dotted line. In my secret heart, though, I really do love the original series because they knew how to tell a story back then. Like uh, that show, Mission Impossible, uh, Bonanza, kind of all those old shows, like that was like the sweet spot of TV writing where we TV had been on for a while and you'd got the first generation of people who were really just writing specifically for TV and they just knew how to like break a story down and just give you something really interesting and then get out after an hour. Oh, no doubt. Like that's, that's just the, the concept of that in general is like what draws me to, to start Star Trek more so than any other type of show. Like I don't yeah. even watch a lot of TV actually. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm a movie movie person i guess yeah uh me too and we'll definitely get to the movies at some point something else we'll be doing is we'll be looking at the effect that trek itself has had on our society as far as like progress technological development and entertainment trek's been around for over 50 years it's had a huge reach it's inspired many other creative people uh, writers and even real world scientists and engineers are doing what they do because of trek and they're trying to make the things that they've seen on Trek. So on some episodes, we'll be going forward instead of back to see what we've got now as a direct or indirect result of Trek. Um, we've all got like, you know, tricorders and in our pockets, kind of. <laughs> right. We, we've I at mean, least we've, got communicators. We don't wear them on our, uh, on our shirts, though. We've got stuff that already makes like older series Trek tech look kind of silly, actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's certainly things... And I, I think I've I've talked about this on my own uh, Star Trek show, Enterprising Individuals, but like the way that often we try to make something 
that we've seen in science fiction because science fiction people are not engineers and they're not scientists. They're just imagining stuff. And so they've got like, oh, it's a communicator you put on your shirt. So then the tech people come in and they go, let's do that. Communicator on your shirt. And wearables were like really big like 15 right. years ago. They thought, oh, everybody's going to be wearing something. And then we were like, no, why would we do that? That's stupid. Why <laughs> like, you just put it in your pocket. Like what happens when it rains? Uh, so we kind of dropped that. But I like the fact that they were like, let's let's try that. Let's do that. Now we've got the foldable phone, which everybody is rushing to make. And I don't know if you've been following like the saga of Samsung's foldable a phone. A little but bit, yeah. It's not going well. It's no, not going well no. at all. We're not quite there just yet. And then once we do get there, maybe we'll go, well, why would I want to do that? <laughs> Fold my phone in half and stick it in my pocket. That's dumb. Right. I've always I always kind of wonder about like if if sometimes like being inspired by the the fake tech from Star Trek if it's like hindered some people in their development a little bit. Oh, to trying to pursue something that's just clearly not practical. Yeah, just not like at least, you know, no one was like cuz I remember some seeing in Star Trek where it's like, oh, I've got all my all my technical manuals I got to read and it's like a separate tablet per thing. They just like, could I'm not glad. yeah, <laughs> imagine that it would all fit, I know, on one thing. Or even the cloud, like every one of those tablets could just connect to the ship's main computer. <laughs> right. Which I think they would, you know, it's a billion kajillion petaflops or whatever. Like they understand <laughs> that that's a lot of, it's got all the knowledge of human history, but yeah, you can't put it on a handheld device. There's no way. Yeah. I, I, I always wondered that about like data too, where like he's got to like read stuff and I'm like, why is, why, why can't Didn't he, just he at some it? point just read everything? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I always wonder about the phasers. Like, I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where we decide that a handle and a trigger are outpaced by the handle of like a dustbuster. You know, let's just have like a thing that you kind of vaguely aim at somebody while your wrist is bent. I don't know if that's we're going to go with that. I, you know, I kind of like that. I know that's like not realistic, but I like the I like the way they look. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, well, they yeah they do look cool. But just having that little like um, the little key fob phaser. Uh huh. Like, yeah. how do you how do you aim that? Like, how do you you need like two points to line up <laughs> right. to make a line? So when you stick it out, like, are you going to shoot over their head or into the ground? Well, and it shows it shows in some t some of the battle scenes on the show. But it's I guess it's not a it's not an action oriented show or even a like, <laughs> no, violent... we'll talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> in a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Right. <laughs> so anyway, that's what we're talking about uh, on this show. And I'm looking forward to it. And of course, we're looking back before we get to today's backtrack. We should probably look around at the present. I want to talk a little bit about what's happening in the world of Trek today uh, in our news section. Yep. For that. That sounds cool. So I don't know if you heard about this, but CBS, of course, has had a lot of success recently with Star Trek Discovery and uh, all the new ongoing Trek series uh, that they are developing. They've actually got five series that are currently in development. And just last week, they announced the get ready for this Star Trek Global Franchise Management Group. This what? is a yes, this is a, they need a better acronym because it's yeah. just good from uh, this is a CBS's effort to expand the brand of Trek to reach beyond its current TV home. And the president of CBS, David Staff, said that, that what they're doing is they're making, and it's all like, you know, corporate speak, they're making gifted brand strategists, uh, veteran consumer products executives oh who are who are experts on the Star Trek canon, he made sure to say. Uh, okay. He also said, quote, we're excited to launch this new business unit because the brand has an enormously rabid fan base and we look forward to expanding its reach even further, end quote. So what they, do you think they, about that? Are they trying to go, is this like, 
trying to go full Marvel? Is that what we're saying? Like everybody's going full Marvel. Yeah, yeah. yeah I guess that's, we call it going full Marvel. Yeah, <laughs> that's the yeah the old industry saying. Well, they um, clearly got the old mill cranked up as far as the TV side goes because um, you know uh, Alex Kurtzman is like the uh, writer and producer there who's spinning out all these shows, and I think this is a concentrated effort by them to take it into all formats or four quadrants i'm not one of these corporate guys so i don't know the terms but i understand what they're trying to do and it's not just like t-shirts you know this could be like theme parks you know what i mean this could be uh man there hasn't been a good star trek video game in like two decades probably oh the video game thing is like that's something i want so bad and i think with something like this you could turn it over to instead of just turning it over to whoever you hire a third party to, to develop it, like they could develop it on their own, have input into it. So we'd get like a good Star Trek game. That's kind of what I'm hoping. Yeah. Yeah. Beyond, I know there's like that VR game that looks kind of cool, but uh, the home one, the it's called like, like bridge simulator or something. Yeah. There's yeah. actually, cause there's one uh, at Dave and Buster's called dark remnant that, I have to be careful not to make the entire show about that because I played that and it's awesome. Like if you have a Dave and Buster's near you and they've okay. got a VR setup, yeah, check out Dark Remnant. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. All right, I'm gonna hit up the Dave and Buster's. Then. <laughs> uh, I hadn't been in an arcade in 20 years and I did just to play this game and it was really great. So I don't know if this is a uh, cynical or savvy or both, but you know, Dis- Disco's been doing really well and of course they've got Patrick Stewart back and that's huge. So I right. remain kind of cautiously optimistic about this. Well, so I'm uh, back to like I, I felt like a Star Trek poser a little bit, um, <laughs> but I I just haven't watched Discovery, um, mostly because oh, okay. I was I was doing this other show where we we're watching TNG and I was and yeah, I don't yeah. watch a lot of TV and I'm just like I ah, you know I'm gonna wait, but now I'm like now that we're doing this show I'm like okay I I can't be a Star Trek. I gotta watch I gotta watch the current Trek, but now they're like we got this show and this show and this show and I'm. I'm a little, feeling a little bit overwhelmed. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta start watching these before they get away from me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't like consider myself like a big TV watcher either, but just watching like my Star Trek habit makes up for, if not exceeds, like the average uh, Trek or a TV watcher. So I probably am a TV watcher. What what I think about like what they're going into here, it I, I just can't help but like think of the era in like the late nineties and early two thousands where, you know, people were getting kind of burnt out on Trek. Um, You know, you had Voyager was on and then enterprise was kind of ramping up and people seemed kind of like kind of done or like, kind of, you know, we had enough. We're looking at other things. And so I wonder if that is something that we're in danger of happening again, or if it's a totally different time now, because you've got like a, it isn't just, when is this on syndicated or when is it on on UPN or whatever? Like now you've got dedicated social media spaces for Trek fans. Um, you know, like I said, you've got a dedicated network. Uh, companies are better at like the machine of promotion and getting you excited, you know, in cycles for these things. So I wonder if it's a different environment and uh, more fertile soil. Yeah, I, I was thinking that too, because like I don't think I know many people outside of like, the Trek bubble we're in who are like talking about discovery or excited about discovery or like, you know, where's, where's the next, you know, Trek four movie basically. So like <laughs> yeah. to to me, like it seems less hype than like 
what TNG seems like it was at the time, but yeah. maybe, maybe that's just like you said, how it is now with the internet. I don't know. Well, there's circles and circles and some circles are really, really big and some are <laughs> kind of big. And I, I keep hearing about like the viewing figures and I know that uh, Discovery does place near the top of other comparable shows. So not like, you know, Game of Thrones blows everybody away, but just other things that you've heard of that are um, primarily streaming shows like it's always number one or, or two or three so i think for the available fan base it's it's got people and i'd say <laughs> that they wouldn't throw all this time and money behind it if they didn't feel like they had something yeah. but of course uh alex kurtzman was also in charge of universal's dark universe uh which had a big push <laughs> And then they realized that, yeah, there was nobody there to catch them when they fell. <laughs> yeah, like before it even got going, too. Yeah, cart so, way miles, light years ahead of the horse yeah, on that one. Yes. So hopefully, I don't think they're doing that here, but, you know, I was kind of watching out. I definitely think there's more people behind it than that, so. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you ask me, like, who cares about, you know, a dark universe, I would say next to nobody. Whereas <laughs> yeah. At least people care about Star Trek. So Yeah. Is the mummy trending on Twitter? I don't think so. So uh, no Frasier, I'm not buying. <laughs> right. Well good luck to them anyway. Uh let's get into our <laughs> featured subject for today's show. Uh, you know, Captain Picard and his crew, they're like a group of enlightened explorers. They abhor <laughs> violence. They stand for equality amongst the sexes and the races. So it's a little strange that one particular episode of Star Trek The Next Generation should look so similar to a 1998 movie about killing as many terrorists as you can cross <laughs> off of your forearm. I'm talking, of course, about the Bruce Willis action extravaganza, Die Hard. And thank you one and all and wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. It's Christmas Eve in L.A. But a team of terrorists. You want money? What kind of terrorists are you? Who said we were terrorists? Have their own holiday plans. And I'm telling you, you're just going to have to kill me. Okay. We do it the hard way. But the one thing they didn't plan on was New York cop John McLean. Got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? If you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, mother... And you'll have it. They have already killed one hostage. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only. Lady, do I sound like I'm ordered a pizza? Come to Papa, honey. Are you really an American? Only if New Jersey counts. What does he think he's doing? Good job. Here's the artillery on us. You appear to It's not the police. He's an easy guy to like. Welcome to the party, pal. And a hard man to kill. Bruce Willis. Die Hard. Can you remember when you first saw Die Hard? Um, I don't know. I Die Hard for me is a movie that's because it came out before I was born. And so it's just like a movie that's always been around, like on TV or whatever, you know? Right. So I can't, I you know, probably one of the first times I saw it was on like TV or something in the, you know, on a weekend in the middle of the day or something, you know, with my yeah. dad probably. So yeah. Yeah. How about you? Uh, it definitely gets a lot of cable play. Um, 
I don't know. I think I have to address. I don't know how, how many times I have to ignore uh, the vast <laughs> age gap between us. And I'm trying to think as you were talking. I don't know what you said, but because uh, I was thinking about trying to imagine a movie that I really like and enjoyed that came out before I was born. Um, and without placing myself specifically, maybe we'll have a game for the audience. Trying to I get like this. Born. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but there definitely are things and I can see that. But having something that's like so ubiquitous um yeah it's tough to to pull out exactly like star wars for instance like star wars clearly was before you were born but like it's everywhere yes you definitely remember um i don't know about you but like when i was young and in school it's like right around the time that like uh, vcrs were becoming something that everybody had you know they were around for a while but they Mm -hmm. were like commercially like cheaply available and so whenever it was like we don't want to teach these kids anything. It's almost spring break or whatever. <laughs> they had one tape they'd throw in Star Wars. So even before oh, I was wow. like aware of Star Wars, I had seen Star Wars 50 times, you know, in like 55 minute increments, <laughs> just like throwing the tape back in because it's almost summer break. And for me, like I do remember like the first time I saw Die Hard because I had a friend when I was growing up that like lived down the street from me and I lived in a household where we didn't watch a lot of movies and we didn't uh, we didn't like I didn't listen to like a lot of rock music either. I wasn't really allowed to listen to rock music. Wow. OK. So, yeah. And uh, as a musician, uh, we definitely have to have a conversation about this at some point. But uh, so for me, like easy to figure out why I'm like super into pop culture now. Right. Because <laughs> yeah. I didn't never get it when I was a kid. But this yeah, friend, no doubt. Uh, This friend of mine, uh, the opposite was true. Like he had his own blockbuster card and there was no R restriction on that baby. So whenever (laughs) I would stay over at his house, like have a sleepover or something, we would head down to blockbuster, come back with an armload of all these films that we just heard were good. Like there was no podcast to tell me that I should go see alien. We just, you know, heard through the general zeitgeist. Oh yeah. Alien. That's a classic movie. So we kind of made this unofficial list that we just started bam, 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 knocking all these films off of. And yeah, one of those movies was Die Hard. Yeah. I I totally relate to that. Like, Oh, the, the friend who you can watch the (laughs) the good stuff with though. My parents weren't like, super strict but they were like the appropriate amount you know like an eight-year-old shouldn't be watching right evil dead <laughs> so yeah right <laughs> that was on the list for sure yeah when i'm interviewing people uh in my other job uh, often when i interview them in person you never really know if the person that you're going to talk to is super comfortable with speaking or, or with an interview like like if you interview like a great comic book artist you know, they're drawing all day. That's what they do. So they don't, you don't know if they're going to be loose and fun to talk to. So mm. I usually plan some like fun throwaway questions to get the conversation rolling. And something I always ask people is like a series of hypothetical questions like this versus that, like, um, you know, cap or Iron Man, uh, hot dog or hamburger and okay. die hard or RoboCop. Ooh, okay. So, so I think, I think die hard is a better movie. Um, but I think I enjoy RoboCop more. Interesting. Just as like, you know, as being like this ridiculous, like intense movie. Whereas I think the like filmmaking of Die Hard is probably much better. So by that specific metric, there's just the, uh, the skill involved in, in putting it together. Yeah. But I'll probably, I would probably almost always rather watch, RoboCop. In fact, <laughs> one time, a band that I used to play in called Dowsing, 
played at a a gig where they were projecting movies and they <laughs> they projected RoboCop behind us while we played some uh, some emo <laughs> revival and uh, it was very touching some of the some of the gore and some of the emo mixed really well. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh boy, I don't know if I would uh, agree with you. Um Okay. I, well, I mean they're both really well made. So at least on that metric, I don't think I could use that as a metric. Um and I'm sure at any given time if you ask me my answer would be different. I know we're talking about Die Hard today, but I think I'd probably pick RoboCop because it's a little, you know, it's more sci-fi. Of course, we're, you know, on a Trek show and I'm kind of a sci-fi guy, but I think that it's got something to say more than Die Hard does. Oh, um, 100%. Yeah. 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 And it's not like I need every pi- uh, bit of uh, media that I consume to be super didactic. But when I think about RoboCop right now, I think I just watched like a really good like video essay about it. And it's like, yeah, I kind of like what they're what they're trying to say. Uh, that being said, as a piece of just like, you know, complete throw off like action. Uh, I mean, Die Hard's it's, it's really it's up there. Yeah, that I mean, it's almost it's almost specifically about nothing because like the terrorists in the film, the ideological warriors aren't not actually ideological warriors. They're just you, crooks that really stuck out to me. And I, um, I, you know, I think something trying to be about nothing also says something, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I follow. I think I follow. Um, and that actually stuck out to me watching it this time. Uh, I, I think I actually texted you. Die Hard is not woke. Yeah. Oh, no, no, it definitely it definitely is not woke. So, uh, like it can be. And I'm, I can totally see like the wrong type of people like grasping onto this movie. Yeah. Uh, and it, yeah, that, I'm sure it's that's a, happened. If it's about anything, it's about a guy who is himself kind of a dinosaur uh, enjoying and, and the movie revels in all the dinosaur things that he does. But at the end, he's like. No, no, I should, you know, yeah, women's lib. My, my wife should be able to keep her own name, have a job if she wants, I guess. That's kind of like what it's really about at the end. Oh, and also yeah. a guy who a guy who shoots a kid uh, learns to kill again, but adults this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, I think that's what was the real, like, thing <laughs> that got me to text you. That was like, oh, we're supposed to, like, like this guy, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Doesn't and he look. happens he happens to be uh, African American um merely because Reginald Bell Johnson has made a whole career out of playing uh policemen. Oh yeah. Um but the fact that he is black does not factor in any way into what the movie's trying to do or say and it, it had there's a weird kind of unintended uh resonance with, you know, current events between um uh police uh, accidental uh killings and uh you know what's going on. Right. Yeah, so yeah, there's just like a lot of like if you kind of scratch away at the surface of the movie a little bit, it's not even scratch away. It's just like <laughs> examine it a little bit. It's like, uh, that's kind of weird, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Die Hard was an unexpectedly huge success for 20th Century Fox. It made 140 million bucks. Uh, that's 1988 dollars on a 28 million dollar budget. And five million of that went to star Bruce Willis, which was unheard of at the time. Uh, for a star that wasn't, say, you know, Marlon Brando or Jack Nicholson or something. And it was also unheard of because Bruce Willis was a TV guy. You know, he was on Moonlighting, 
which was a situational comedy at the time, and he had right. not had a real starring role, especially not in an action role like this. And if you look at some of the old posters for the film, nowadays they, you know, for the DVD cover, they put his face back on there, but they didn't really use his face. It was just the building, the Nakatomi building on the posters. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I always knew that that was like, you know, because I wasn't hearing the conversations at the time, but I knew that was like a big deal for him. But I didn't know it was like to the point where it's like, let's not even uh, reference him on the cover. Yeah, I read wow. an article uh, from Variety that was you know written at the time and the guy was just going off on like, well, what's next? You know, are we going to give uh, $10 million, $15 million? And it was it took like 10 years, but. Jim Carrey got uh, $20 million for The Cable Guy in like 96 or 97, which was like at that time was the biggest payday. So in a lot of ways, like this could be seen as and also Jim Carrey had been in movies when he was younger, but he was basically a TV star, too. So this could you could see this as opening the door to like these huge salaries uh, for for marquee actors. Well, I don't want to say I don't want to say Bruce Willis earned it, but I mean, he (laughs) he uh, he's good. He's good in this movie. He is good. Yeah. He's definitely doing a thing where, you know, there's this running thing in the film about like, you know, TV cowboys, you know, Roy Rogers or, or whatever. And he's definitely doing a thing where I don't know if he worked on it or agreed on it with um, John McTiernan, the director, but he's kind of doing a Clint Eastwood thing. Yeah. Like if yeah. you ever watch Moonlighting, he was just a goofy guy. And so the parts in the movie where he's like, that sounds like a murder to pizza. Like that's that's the Moonlighting side of him. And when he's not <laughs> doing that, he's like, very fast, Argyle. You know, he's just like really that sort of like squinty eye thing that he would uh, take into uh, many, many of his other films. Well, and almost uses like a crutch, I think, sometimes. <laughs> or like actually watching this was kind of uh striking to me because i'm just so used to like him being not good at all anymore you know yeah, yeah. So i was like oh like yeah. actually not squinting his eyes he's actually asleep yeah yeah definitely yeah uh, he's, uh, of course, you know, good in this movie. Uh, this movie also, of course, stars Alan Rickman in, I think people know, uh, his first movie role. Oh, no, I didn't know that. I, the, oh. The, yeah. That's, he, yeah. That's it's awesome. His, it's really his first role. Before this, he had done some British TV when he was younger. And actually, right before this, he was in a um, very uh, a highly rated and sort of famous uh, production of uh, Les Liaisons de Jerusa. Uh, on the West End, and he, there's just a lot of buzz around him, and so he got signed to this film, and it was like his his first go, and a lot is asked of him, you know, he's got to kind of take over and be the sort of main uh, other pole of the film as far as being the bad guy. He's got to do some accent work, which uh, you know <laughs> has, <laughs> has some successful parts, uh, yeah. but some not so successful parts. Yeah, and he has to be this kind of not just this cackling villain, but also bring this kind of dark charisma to it. You know, we kind of root for him a little bit. I love that scene where Bonnie Bedelia, who of course is in the film too, uh, and is great, is like, you're just a thief. And he's like, I'm an exceptional thief. <laughs> <laughs> it's why is it his face on the cover? That's what I want to say. There you go. Yeah. Either side of the building. Sure. Yeah. Come on. He, he. Yeah. I love, I love stories like that of someone who's like, known as like this exceptional actor like now being in like some huge like pop culture you know or like popcorn movie you know yeah and this would i i think in a big way this would lead to him uh getting the role of the sheriff of nottingham in uh the uh 
it's called Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and now just he's or was all over, so Yeah, was all over. R. I. P. Yeah. Yeah. We almost got uh, a different type of hero. Uh, we were talking about uh, Clint Eastwood and sort of the older heroes of Hollywood. Uh, we almost got Frank Sinatra in the role of John McClane. Was was this for? Was this going to be the same year or like, like? No, absolutely not. <laughs> no, uh, Frank Sinatra played uh, the lead role in the movie The Detective, which was based on a book by Roderick Thorpe. And that okay. came out in 1968. And it was, um, it was a, you know, he played like this uh, police detective called Joe Leland. And the sequel to that book was called Nothing Lasts Forever. And that's the book that was adapted into the script for Die Hard. Okay. Yeah. Cause what he, what year did he die? Uh, he died in like the 90s, late 90s. Oh, okay. I think. Okay. So, but the deal was, yeah, the deal was, uh, part of his deal in being in the detective was that he got first dibs on any film adaptation of the next book, Nothing Lasts Forever. And of mm. course, this was being developed in the 80s. Uh, he was in his 70s. And so there was no way that he could do that. Uh, so he said no, uh, thankfully. But the uh, character was then reworked into John McClane uh, for the script for Die Hard. Okay, wow. Well, I'm not sure how that even if he was in his prime, like I don't know what that would have been like. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm There's... actually not familiar with his like acting any of his film roles at all, so He's been in some good stuff. He's yeah. been in, you know, The Manchurian Candidate, The Man with the Golden Arm and a couple different uh he was in uh, From Here to Eternity. He's got a pretty uh fairly impressive just for a, you know, a uh, singer. Yeah, no doubt. Okay. I feel like Die Hard on a Blank is Totally a thing that is identifiable, uh, definitely in the wake of this film. In fact, mm-hmm. we've actually got a clip from an Honest Trailers video about all the kinds of Die Hard on a Blank you can have. Die Hard on a bus. Die Hard in a tunnel. Die Hard on a mountain. Die Hard in the White House. Die Hard in the White House 2. Die Hard in a mall. Die Hard on a boat. Die Hard on this other boat. Die Hard in a rink. Die Hard on a train. Die Hard in a plane. Die Hard in another plane. Die Hard in the President's plane. Die Hard in a plane with snakes. And Die Hard but awful. To your contract on that phone. So movies like Speed and, you know, uh, almost every Steven Seagal movie uh, after Under Siege, a lot of Van Damme films, they're all guy stuck in a something, ice hockey rink, whatever it is. You got terrorists, right? And then you've got some kind of twist. They're terrorists, but they also want something or they're not really terrorists or you're the terrorist or all of these things like lead to like this kind of trope that you see where it's die hard on a whatever. Yeah, it almost yeah, it almost like defined movies for a while or at least that, you know, genre for a while. And there's kind of twists on it. Like I've heard I'm trying to figure out like what because die hard can't be the first movie to do this. Like what? What was the first sort of Die Hard esque type film? Right. And I heard somebody say like, "Oh, Alien," and I'm like, "Alien's a horror movie. Like, there's a monster. the The ship is the haunted house, and they're all getting taken taken out one by one. Mm-hmm. Although Ripley has some kind of McLean um, esque elements to her, or the reverse. And then I thought, like, what about like First Blood? Like Rambo's out in the forest. He's yeah. setting traps. He's trying to take guys out. But Rambo's kind of the monster in that movie, though. <laughs> like they're the ones getting picked off by he's the freaky Jason. Right. Yeah, I get I yeah, I can't think of an action, good action example. 
Yeah. I think I think there, you know, that this just like it didn't create it for sure, but it like any it kind of like wiped the slate for anything before it in a way. Oh yeah. No, it definitely set the table. Like you you are a diehard on a something from now on. There was a movie way back in the forties called Key Largo. It was directed by John Houston and it starred Humphrey Bogart. Uh, and Edward G. Robinson. And mm. in that, Bogart plays like this ex-military guy who goes to this isolated hotel, you know, in the in the Florida Keys. And at the same time, there's like criminals there and they take it over. And so it's not the whole movie, but near the end, he has to kind of like sneak around and take them out one by one. That's pretty much all I could come up with with a diehard-esque scenario. It ha- it has to be pretty prevalent, I feel like, because because it is such a... I feel like it's such a simple premise that it's got to be like an easy go to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But somehow like these guys just kind of nailed it. And of course, um, somebody who's really responsible for that is um, legendary Hollywood screenwriter, Stephen E. D'Souza, uh, who wrote the screenplay along with Jeb Stewart. Uh, D'Souza is like, if you name an action movie from the eighties and he probably had some kind of connection to it. Um, Commando is another big one that he did. Um, yeah, just putting all these like it's like that great cuisine. It's like simple ingredients and you put them together in the right way and you come out with something like this. Right. And you think actually you'd think it'd be like, you know, it's it's easier said than done, I guess, because <laughs> yeah. we talked about all of See, those. Steven other Seagal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or yeah. If you like I will have released by the time this comes out uh, for pro wrestling required viewing, we watched a WWE studios movie that was basically diehard. Isn't every other one a diehard knockoff? <laughs> Essentially. Or it's like, they took like, Hey, that's a good movie. Like, let's just like do it with a wrestler in it and call right. it something else. So yeah, they did diehard in a, in a PlayStation or in a PlayStation <laughs> in a, ugh. <laughs> that's a good outtake they did they talk about the diehard playstation game <laughs> is that it a real exists. thing <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh <laughs> they did diehard in a police station and starring uh-huh. a wwe or former wwe superstar dean ambrose and you can go okay. listen to our thoughts on that but it is like 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 we said easier said than done because it is awful it is so bad hmm there's uh Die Hard in a police station has uh been done because in nineteen seventy six uh there was Assault on Precinct thirteen from John Carpenter. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, see there's there's a a pre Die Hard movie. So come on, WWE film, step it up. It can't be that hard. He's a former firefighter and his daughter is something <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can, I can see it already. I can see the poster. Uh do you have a favorite moment or a favorite character, just an element from Die Hard that stands out for you? Oh well, it- I did want to say like one thing even we were talking about like the politics of it being like maybe questionable and (laughs) like like it is a simple premise but like what does really sell it is that like I feel like all the characters even the cop whose story is that he killed a a boy like all the characters are super likable and like iconic and it's it's not just because you know I watched it a bunch as, as a kid it's just they they're just there and they're great like every even characters who are on screen for like a couple minutes like feel like fleshed out for some reason i don't know if it's the writing or the actors or whatever but i I just wanted to shout all the all the minor characters out 
Yeah, there's a certain flavor to, especially like these 80s action movies, and you probably see it before or after, but definitely at this time where they didn't skimp on any characterization. Like it'd be easy for a character who's going to drive the guy home from the airport to just be a guy played by an actor. But instead they go, what if it's like this funky dude, you know, who's like, uh, got the big bear, you know, and he's like hanging out and calling his girlfriend in the in the parking garage. Right. Like, what if it was that? Like, what if everything had character? What if the um, the guy at the Circle K like made fun of the cop for buying Twinkies? Like everybody's got a little just a little hook to kind of stand out. Right. Yeah. They just they just feel like they're there longer. Um, something, something that gets me about the film is that first of all there's no argument this is a christmas film we all know that i don't care what bruce willis says <laughs> right and the way that michael common the composer weaves these like christmas carols into all of the uh soundtrack so that when there's a tense moment it's kind of like a bummer version of uh like a christmas carol or when you've got that moment where they open the vault you know you you have ode to joy <laughs> because they're really happy that they're going to get all this money Right. I, I like that really stuck out to me this time. Maybe it's because the first time I've watched it since like the whole like the whole argument about that became a meme. Yeah. You know, but uh, it doesn't like, you know, it doesn't like give you the same feeling that like an, a normal like a, an actual maybe Christmas movie would. That's like about Christmas. But like it has like the tone of this movie is like so. It's so unique, I think. Like, it doesn't, there's not a lot of movies that I think feel like this. And I think it is because it's like Christmas in LA vibes. Yeah, right. <laughs> you even get, like, after the building blows up, all the papers and, and uh, ash are falling down at the end. So you get a little, little snow in there. Oh, yeah. So, like, a favorite moment, I think I really enjoy the scene where I can't remember the, the character's name, but he's, like, trying to tell uh, the the villains he's trying to tell Hans that he knows John McClane and he, they're like trying to get him to like come down. He's like, they're going to kill me. And you know, he's like winking and nodding. Ellis. Yeah. Ellis. Okay. Yeah. I really like, I, that's another character who he's barely in the movie, but like, I don't know. He's (laughs) very charismatic. And that scene is very funny. Um, and kind of dark, but yeah, that's, that's a standout moment for me. Hart Bachner plays Ellis, and I think he's great, and I always thought that he should have been bigger than he was. Like, I think he's a guy who, he's good-looking, but he's, like, not good-looking enough, and then he's, I don't know, like, he's not, maybe he's too good-looking to be a villain, though, too. He was in a couple things, like, in the early 80s, and the only thing I can think of besides this that he was really in was he played the love interest in the original uh, 1987 Supergirl film. Oh, okay. I've never seen that, so. Oh, okay. Well, um, I don't know if it has any uh, Trek connections, but I would definitely push to watch that because it is amazingly bad. Uh, You know, we can play seven degrees of Trek separation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Maybe Um, his vibe, maybe maybe it's just because he has a beard, but his attractiveness and vibe is very, like, Riker-ish to me. (laughs) Okay, there you go. He's charming, but not, like... Not a total hunk, you know? Right. I want to see how coked out Riker <laughs> doing the same kind of stuff. Please. Uh, you missed a little, number one. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I like that I, and I mean, there's a million good moments, but like something that I noticed this time that I'd never noticed before is that nearly every character in the movie sings or hums or whistles at some point. You know, we talked about the soundtrack 
and the score, but like everybody is providing their own score the whole time. Like the good guys, the bad guys, everybody's humming. It's either a Christmas tune or it's like a little ditty. And yeah. I wonder, it, it can't be a coincidence. You know, an actor can walk on set and go, oh, what if I do this? And fine. But it had to be like a choice and a decision by um, by the filmmakers. No, yeah, because because well, you mentioned it with like the the Christmas carols being incorporated into the score. But you know, sometimes someone would be humming something and it'd be kind of the score would be kind of matching it. And yeah, yeah. It re- like it felt very intentional to me, just because it like it just like blended in with the whole tone, the whole vibe that I was getting. So it. If it wasn't intentional, like that's impressive too. But yeah, I think it gives the whole uh, enterprise kind of a goofy, kind of Looney Tunes feel. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because it's kind of like a serious thing. It, it's you know, these terrorists are taking over. They're getting their heads blown off one by one. They're killing hostages. But the whole thing has this ebullient kind of, kind of goofy vibe almost with uh, John McClane at the center as the uh, you know what's up doc kind of character. Right. Yeah. There's like. You're, there's murder like i said the the politics are a bit harsh and stuff <laughs> yeah. but like the movie just is so like yeah it's like welcome to like, the party pal yeah the movie is just a good time yeah <laughs> well fast forward to 1993 star trek the next generation is in its sixth season and an episode premieres that features captain picard in a similar situation to john mcclain but this time it's die hard on the enterprise <laughs> It's Starship Mine. During a shipwide evacuation, alien thieves target the Enterprise. Stay right where you are. And the crew is taken hostage in a brutal assault. <laughs> now, Picard is trapped alone with the enemy. Who are you? But can he stop their deadly plan and save the Enterprise? I would rather destroy the ship than allow that resin to fall into the hands of terrorists. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. Yep, this is the episode where Captain Picard is going after his saddle. Uh, he, <laughs> oh he rides God. horses, don't you know? Yeah, <laughs> and he finds himself on board the Enterprise while a team of thieves slash terrorists are there to steal a deadly substance. And so he has to go solo and take them out. And then meanwhile, there is a B story on the planet where the rest of the crew is uh, being held hostage at a party. Was the party sa- sucks. Was the saddle thing... I couldn't ever tell even by the end when they were joking about it if that was sincere or if that's a lie he made up about having <laughs> <He> his does... <laughs> We know that so you're um on your show you're covering uh, you just got to season 1, right? Yes. Uh in season 2 of the show a writer joins the staff named Melinda Snodgrass and mm. she writes some really great episodes for the show but she's also a um a horse owner and a dressage rider. And so she sort of works that into Captain Picard's uh, character that he really loves horse riding okay. and uh, is an equestrian. Yeah. And so I think this is a callback to that. Okay. If she hadn't added that, it would have been, oh, I've got to get my tea cozy. They would have come up with something else. probably. <laughs> okay. Cause I, I remember, I remember him riding horses with Kirk. Yes. <laughs> um, but I, yes. yeah, I couldn't recall. Like, I felt like it in the moment, it felt like he heard stables and he was like, oh, that's my out. You <laughs> well, know, stable, stables, horse. Yes. Right. <laughs> What's in a stable? <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, that's cool then. Plus, he uh, gets to wear the kind of blousy uh, green silk shirt and his riding boots and, and look cool oh, while I, he's I uh, shooting it. people. I was, yeah. that was, I was so into that. 
<laughs> this episode was written by Morgan Gendel, who also wrote the episode The Inner Light, uh, which is a highly oh, regarded yeah. Picard episode. Yeah. And he wrote a couple episodes of DS9. I should mention that even though he's credited solely for Starship Mine, I did read that uh, producer writers Michael Piller and Ronald D. Moore did do a, um, a page one rewrite of the script. Oh, OK. But it's that situation where depending on the timing or if you change uh, or not significant elements, you know, it's still credited to the guy who introduced the concept and gave them, you know, the meat of the script. So this is his story for sure. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, that's, that's cool. The resemblances in the episode to Die Hard are uncanny. And Gendel <laughs> oh said gosh. in an interview, he said in 2012 that he did not intend to base it on Die Hard. Like it's not about Die Hard, but come on. It's, this is, it's not a stretch. Like, to even say this like it's so obviously influenced by Die Hard like there's yeah. very specific things like the only thing they could have done more was like set it at Christmas <laughs> yeah they're yeah they're out of luck there because uh this is a godless uh heathen 24th century <laughs> right. with uh, no Christmas but uh yeah th- or uh had a, a a fat uh, Starfleet guy in a shuttlecraft fly by and see uh, you know eating Twinkies and uh, is everything okay? Yeah, oh, Twinkies. <laughs> yeah, that's what this was missing. There's a uh, there's a lot of guy stuck in a blank you know episodes of Star Trek and sci fi shows, but you know just five years earlier we had Die Hard, and of course um, just three or four years earlier we had Die Hard Two uh, had just come out in theaters. So I mean yeah, come on. Yeah, yeah, no, it's and it's it's a bunch of little things too, like not just the premise, but like you know talking on the radio and climbing yeah. in the vents or what you yeah. know. I mean, people climb in the vents in every movie. Name a movie someone's climbing in a vent, but <laughs> I'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's definitely an overlap that would make it an attractive thing to do. Um, something that we should do, I think, if we're looking at two different pieces of media, is to point out if they share any actors or crew. Because Trek's been around forever, and it's a franchise that both gives people their start, and it also attracts veterans who want to do a Trek thing. Um, that being said, this is a, an auspicious de- debut of this feature, because I couldn't find a single actor in Die Hard that has been in a piece of Trek media. Oh, that's, that's kind of wild, just because uh, with Trek, it's like, Almost everyone has like done something like a tiny cameo. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, fail, failed segment, but maybe next time. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that I could find was a couple different VFX people have worked on both Trek and this. There's a guy named Richard Edland, uh, who was the VF, VFX supervisor for this film. Uh, and he is he's uh, won many awards. He's been nominated for Academy Awards. He originally got a start on the original series of Trek. And amongst doing other things like doing um, rotoscoping people beaming in and out, uh, he shot the Enterprise flyby that opens up the series in the um, in the credit sequence of original series. Oh, okay. So, so that whole do do like he shot that. So that's pretty crucial. That's that's a yeah. pretty good tie. Yeah. And he went on to uh, work with a guy named John Dykstra that Star Wars fans should know and worked on the Star Wars films and a lot of uh, action films and stuff like that in the 80s. So, yeah, he's a big deal. Uh, Another guy named Bruce McRae worked on this film. Um, He's a model maker. So I'm assuming he did, you know, probably like the helicopters when they blew up and stuff like that. In addition to working uh, on Star Trek, uh, The Next Generation, he worked on this film. He worked on The Hunt for Red October. Uh, which is another uh, John McTiernan film. 
um, some Freddy films and other science fiction films. And he actually worked on Live Free or Die Hard, Die Hard 4. Okay. Well, it's too bad there was no Bruce Willis was never in any Star Trek. No, I'm trying to even think like what you could do with him. I think at this point in his, you know, in his older age and with his kind of his new technique of acting, which is to kind of not act, uh, you you could slot him into like something. He could play like a, Hey, uh, speaking of Robocop, Peter Weller played an admiral in Star Trek into darkness. Oh, yeah. So you could do that kind of thing with him. Yeah. Yeah. You could just have him be kind of like some tired old guy. <laughs> puts I, I don't know if he would be willing to have any like makeup done though so he's got to be human no, probably absolutely no makeup yeah <laughs> unless you could do it in post yeah no makeup yeah. for that guy they just like tint his skin green or something <laughs> they did it for what was that looper where he plays uh sort of a younger version of himself mm. and i'm sure they used a similar technology to what they do in like to make nick fury look younger Oh yeah, yeah. They just got to get that Nick Nick Fury tech. But a lot of the yeah, in Looper, a lot of the makeup was on the um, the other side. You know, um, what's his name was Joseph uh, Gordon Levitt. That's right? the guy. Yeah. What a name to forget. Uh, yeah, they made him look like Bruce Willis, but <laughs> kind of like I don't. Er, yeah, I think they could have did a better job. He ended up looking like a like a PS2 character. Like his <laughs> face was all like blocky and weird. That's that's the best description of it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow accurate yeah uh not a not a lot of bits in that one uh, i will say that uh we see the first appearance of tim russ in trek in this episode oh, yeah. uh he would of course go on to play tuvok a main character in voyager and several other figures in the star trek universe he also appeared as an unnamed character in star trek generations the horse riding one. Oh, oh not riding a horse though no he wasn't riding a horse. i had that immediately shot into my mind which sounds great too <laughs> a lot of people don't know, uh, so I'll say here that he's also the guy in Spaceballs that says, we ain't found shit. Oh, no kidding. I didn't know yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. That is wild. Okay. Yeah. That was a small role there not, for him. I will notice that now if I ever watch that again. I saw a video on his Twitter where he was like in his backyard and he had like one of those Zen garden things and he had like a, like a calmer oh pick God. and he was basically just like poking at the sand. He's like, I've been on, you know, X amount of shows. I did Star Trek Voyager for three or seven years. I've been nominated for a Tony award and all people remember is we ain't found shit. Oh, that sounds, that sounds sad. I think he meant it as a joke. Okay, but yeah, maybe the, maybe the context is, is key there. <laughs> yeah. You were talking before about some of the similarities between the episodes. Like, what do you think really rings out besides uh, the climbing and the radio and, and all that stuff? Oh, God, the radio was the big one. Um, I I think, oh, the, the other big one is the fact that, like, it, it's a little less so in this, but the fact that they're, like, they're not fully terrorists like there's yeah they're arms dealers but they're still like they're still motivated by money motivated and they're still motivated by like they're going to provide that stuff to terrorists so it you know right it right whereas like i don't know what what group i forgot what hans gruber was gonna do but it seemed like he was just gonna like <laughs> he was gonna sit on a beach and collect 20 percent. right <laughs> yeah, yeah so that that stuck out the most to me like where it's like come on guys <laughs> yeah uh i think the fact that he disguises his identity is another like good parallel because when you think about it does it matter if he's the captain or not it doesn't 
but he's like, oh, I'm the barber. You know, he pretends to be somebody else. Right. And we see that, of course, you know, and it's important that nobody knows who um, John McClane is. That didn't stick out to me at the time as being like, why why wouldn't he do that? Because I, I just thought like, well, yeah, like then they'd, then they'd know more about him. But maybe it's just because I had just watched Die Hard. That I was like, that's just obviously what you would do. John McClane, of course, has no compunction about you know, killing his opponents. Uh, Captain Picard seems to want to not kill his opponents uh, as an enlightened 24th century uh, Starfleet officer would, but those people all die. <laughs> we are right. we are told the danger of the Baryon sweep uh, immediately, and so anybody that we don't see after he, you know, nonviolently or at least non-lethally incapacitates them, um, they're they're dying, right? Unless he's dragging them uh, to a shuttlecraft or something and jettisoning them off the ship. Right. So that's that's one thing I was looking forward to revisiting this episode was because I was like, okay, die hard, sketchy politics. But I was like, I want to see Star Trek spin on it because I thought I was like, this is maybe going to be that. But like with, uh, you know, something more interesting to say. And they sort of got at it a little bit, but they didn't really fully explore that idea. You know, there was like a reference like, you wouldn't kill us. You're a Starfleet officer. And he does in the end. But then it's like, <laughs> yeah, well, he's, he, yeah, because he's like, maybe I will. And then, you know, he knocks the guy out and he's like, no, nah, you're right. I, I wouldn't. But then if he just leaves that guy there, that guy dies. And we never I, I'm sure it's like a standards and practices thing. We never see what the Baryon sweep does. But I think oh we can gosh. you know, imagine that it's something terrible. Get some of that conspiracy effects on there. Yeah, explode. <laughs> your head would definitely explode. Well, so doesn't he cause them to like explode in the very end too? Yes. Uh, when they take the trilithium resin away, it's very unstable. And so they've got something on the thing that's making sure that it won't blow up. And he and we took do that it. little. Yeah, he takes the thing off and he's like, see you in hell. Yeah. <laughs> so so I liked that. And he gave a little look at it like. You know, like, oh, I did it. I killed them. And it was like, yep. I was like, dang, that's dark. Picard went there. But then yep. it does this thing that they always do where it's like, and now the f- jokey fun ending. And I was like, wait, yeah. <laughs> should this movie end with like Picard, like taking a shower, hot shower? Like, what have I done? <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. It had to be done. Yeah. But instead, I think the the writers definitely wanted to like, let's pitch it back up at the end. And speaking of that ending. Are they doing a thing because he does they, – they do a callback to the, oh, every person who loves horses has their own saddle. <laughs> uh, they, they call back to that, but then they go, it's, um, it's, it's important to anybody who rides a horse. And then Worf says, of course. Oh, Are they doing a Mr. Ed thing? Uh, are they? Is that what's going on there? I didn't – Is that what the fuck they're doing? <laughs> I, I guess it didn't – Those sons of bitches. Did, should they have played a little – well, I guess they probably did play a little jingle there, but they couldn't they couldn't play the theme music for for that show. No, that's a different company. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I guess that's uh that's kind of weird. <laughs> that's that's a weird way to end it. I have no idea what they were trying to accomplish other than just like you said, take it from oh boy to like <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. I If it was really fine, wouldn't Hutch be alive still? Yeah, he yeah, couldn't he have saved some of them? Yeah, I don't know. Like if you imagine, I mean if we think about some of the differences um between these this movie and this episode, 
if let's say that you had Argyle and then, you know, 45 minutes into Die Hard, the terrorists find Argyle and just just ventilate him, just just plug him, put him on the ground. He's gone. The bear, too. That's kind of what happens with Hutch in the episode Starship Mine. They introduce this character who, yeah, we're all annoyed by him, but yeah, he's fun. He wants to talk about the weather or whatever. And then the terrorist attack starts. Uh, Jordy gets wounded. Hutch gets shot. And when we come back, there's a body covered by a tarp. And that's Hutch. He's dead. And they never talk about him ever They don't again. even talk. About, yeah. He was just there to be funny. And yeah. then... Yeah, there was really no purpose for his character, I guess, <laughs> no, other than to get blown Picard away. on the ship. Yeah, I did like I did like all the stuff with him and Data. Oh yeah, Brent Spiner was definitely having fun <laughs> doing all the uh, the small talky uh, stuff. Yeah, it was like miles beyond comedically what I've been like witnessing of Data <laughs> in the first yeah. season. So yeah, this was like a this episode was like a breath of fresh air for me personally, actually. <laughs> You're getting out of the uh, the depths of season one. Yeah, like a, the cobwebs cl- were cleared, and yeah, I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. this is a great show. Yeah, I love the part where so, you know, he gets a uh, Picard gets weapons from the people that he uh, takes out, but he also um, keeps losing them, so uh, he has to go to Worf's quarters. And I like the fact that Worf just totally pieces out of the episode at the beginning, but just by being like. Do I have permission to not be in this episode? Sure, go ahead. And then he just disappears. <laughs> but Picard is able to go to his place later. And of course, I need where on the ship can I go that I know there's guns? Uh, he goes right to Worf's quarters. And of course, it's packed solid with all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> it reminds me of a roommate that I had in college who collected like knives and like crossbows and stuff like that. And he did have a crossbow. He had a blowgun. Now, I'm not talking about like a... Um, like a gods must be crazy type thing. It's like a three foot long tube, right? And it's made wow. of metal. And then the darts are carbon fiber darts too. So you can you know, blow one of these things and it will sink into like a brick wall. And I actually shot one into the wooden closet door and we couldn't get it out for weeks. It was so stuck deep in there. I'm going to, this is going out on a limb, but that's, this is excessive weaponry. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So that's that's who Worf reminds me of. <laughs> uh, that, I was roommates with a guy like Worf in college. I don't know. Did he bathe? Oh, sure. Yeah, he was a. I know Worf doesn't enjoy it. No, least. that's true. They do have those. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a different uh, point. It there. was a good excuse to get a friggin' crossbow in this episode, <laughs> yeah, though. That was it sick. Was. That was so cool. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't think we ever see Worf's crossbow again. But yeah, it was a neat <laughs> thing to pull out. It makes me wonder why he can't just go. I guess the power's off in the ship, so maybe some uh, areas are inaccessible. But we know there's weapons lockers. Like he can't just go and like type a code in and like get a get a get an old phaser out of there. Oh wait a minute, I'm going back on myself here because they do say that specifically the phasers won't work because of the baryons. Oh yeah, there you go. So he needs so that set that up analog weapon here. <laughs> yeah. And he also needs his uh, junior chemistry kit to, like, make flash paper and stuff like that. And he's ready to have, like, a little explosion, which he never uses. Oh, I, di- I didn't even think about that. That That's such a disappointment. Yeah. I liked it, though. It showed Picard, you know, got to show off Picard being a, uh, in- his ingenuity. He's and... got to have that ingenuity. Yeah, yeah. If it was going to be more like Die Hard, he would have found a way to get a little bit of the of the resin. 
like uh, John McClane does with the C4 and then, you know, make like a makeshift bomb or something like that and blow up something, something that the uh, that they're trying to do with their plot. Oh, that'd be cool if he blew up part of the Enterprise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does stick a, he sticks that gun in like that power socket. And I think we're led to believe that that's not very good for the ship. So it looks like they're going to be undergoing some repairs probably <laughs> uh, after the credits roll. <laughs> Something that makes Trek Trek is, you know, the technology that they have, the technology of the future. It sometimes facilitates what the characters are doing, but just as often it's the actual complication that they're dealing with. So I thought we should like, let's randomly pick from a list of Star Trek technologies and add what we come up with to the non-Trek media, and then we can subtract it from the Trek episode and see how each would change. Oh. We'll call this a, a technological exchange. Yeah, okay. Let's Yeah, let's do it. So here's the list of technology that we've got right now. We've got 10 things, but listeners, you can add us on Twitter at, at Backtrekking and give us suggestions. We'll add them to the list if they're good. Uh, I've got phasers, got holodecks, I've got tricorders, transporters, Warp drive, replicators, communicators, shields, advanced medical tech, just in general, and androids. So I'm going to roll virtually a 10-sided die and see what we get. Okay. All right. I came up with eight, which is shields. Shields. Yes. The concept of shields. (laughs) If you added shields to Die Hard, how would it change? If you took shields away, how would the episode change? Start with Die Hard. Okay. Well, I th- I think first of all, the guys in the helicopter <laughs> would be better off. <laughs> yeah, they would have survived that explosion. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I, I guess it's not like Vietnam. That was actually I want to throw in that's a for another favorite moment is those guys when those when the FBI guys get blown up. Just just like they increase like they keep adding levels of bureaucracy to this. And yeah. like it becomes more of a of a parody as yeah. more people show up, then you get to this, these guys. This might be this might be part of the cowboy thing or maybe an eighties thing, but this movie really has it in for bureaucracies of any kind. Yeah, no, it's it's all about the the lone the the good guy with a gun, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh yeah. boy, didn't you ask me about the new Death Wish? <laughs> yeah, yeah that, yeah, that was like this is the like far reach of like where this idea could go. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I love those guys, um, and you know, I'd I'd hope a shield could save them for sure. Yeah, if the building itself could shields up, then of course that would make it much more difficult for uh, the the SWAT guys to get in, and John McClane would really have uh, would have no way out. You know, at the at the end or near the end when he jumps off the uh, the building in the iconic scene as the roof explodes, you know, what happens then? Is he on the outside of the shield? Can he get back in? Oh yeah, do they ever in Star Trek show someone like physically trying to go through a shield? Like, see, that's funny because that's a good question because we don't really get a lot of details as to how shields work. Like, could you, if a ship's shields were up, could you just put your hand on it and it's like a force field? But they've got force fields in, uh, like the brig and so on, right. right? That people can't go through. And so there's two things I can think of. There's an episode where. The Enterprise has to hold open these doors. It's not the Enterprise. It's actually a different ship. But they have to hold open these like giant doors on this Dyson sphere. And they have their shields up. And the doors stop at the shields. So it seems like that is a force field. Then oh. there's an episode of DS9 where 
they're on the defiant and it's all messed up it's been shot up and there's like a fire in engineering but they have to get through engineering so they put like a force field over the fire and like dax is like walking on the force field at one point to get to another part okay so there there is some like physically you can interact with it it doesn't like yeah. vaporize you or something well maybe if it was turned all the way up yeah i don't know turn the shield up <laughs> so they'd have to they'd have to lower the shields of the nakatomi building then to allow these helicopters in before they blow everything up that would that could element a whole add a whole element of you know we gotta we gotta hack the shields yeah right yeah <laughs> that's yeah there's no there's not a lot of technology in die hard really it's that's funny because there's a lot of like if you consider weapons technology i guess you know there's a lot of weapons there's a lot of things they do with guns and he's got to you know use this he's got to reload this gun yeah um but otherwise yeah it, it is a, more like radio individual yeah, they, yeah right there's a radio there's individual pitfalls sort of and like hazards like you know of course the glass in the feet is like a iconic one they do some they do some like hacking don't they in it or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the yeah, um the um the the quarterback is toast guy has the nerd has to uh, hack through the thing. They go through all this trouble of getting Takagi's password and he won't give it to him. They kill him and then he hacks that thing in like 2 minutes. <laughs> yeah, well he's And the password that he finds is he 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 writes in Akagi, which I guess means red castle. So that's the password, but it's like that guy's name was Takagi though. Should I take my last name? take the first letter off and then find what the translation of that is in something else that, to be my password. That's like uh, the space balls. Uh, one, two, three, <laughs> four, five. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so what about uh, our episode Starship Mine? If we took the shields away, took shields out of that, how would that change that episode? Well, maybe, maybe they, because there was an element of their, like, we can't interact with what's going on in the ship. Or, well, I yeah. guess they were also being held hostage there, because I was right. I was always thinking when you said Worf like pieced himself out of the episode, <laughs> yeah. I felt like that's because he did he go riding a horse or something? <laughs> yeah, he was. Yeah, I'm sure. Where'd he end up? Well, of course. <laughs> God. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I hate it. <laughs> but I I feel like they I mean they could have figured anything out with him there, but I feel like maybe he pieced out a little bit because like. He would be all hands on in that situation. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So if there's no shield and he can get up, you know, he would have maybe taken those guys down no problem. And then he would have gone on the ship. He would have been the one with the crossbow. That, yeah, oh, that would have right. been awesome. Yeah, that's what that's what we need. Of course, you got to give this to Picard, I guess, because it's, you know, his ship. And Gendel said when he was writing it, he was thinking about the idea of, like, the captain going down with the ship, like, it being his responsibility. But that's what we need, which we never got in Trek, is seeing, like, Worf go on, like, a one-man killing spree type thing. There's this little part at the end of uh, Insurrection where he's alone on a ship and he's fighting, like, six guys and he's just, just kicking ass all over the place. But usually he's just the guy who gets knocked on his ass to show us how tough today's, you know, Alien of the Week is. Right, yeah, he's he almost. I don't want to. I don't want to dip too far into wrestling, but like, he, <laughs> he reminds me of like the big. He's putting everybody else he's over. He's like right? the big guy jobber, where it's like, yeah, right. It's like he's the big show. <laughs> at some point, you think like, oh, maybe he's not that tough. Actually, yeah. 
Yeah, I just want to see him like like two hand like an axe into somebody, you know, from across the room. He had to have done something cool in Deep Space Nine. Uh, he does a lot of like kind of walking around and complaining in DS Nine. I guess he kills uh, Gowron. That's pretty cool. That's pretty. That's pretty awesome. Actually, you know what? That's not true. There's an episode where he uh, gets captured and he is being held prisoner on a um, Jem'Hadar like concentration camp, basically. And he, every day, so he's there with some other people like Bashir and stuff, and they just put them like in a cell. But every day they make him come out and fight, like pit fight other Jem'Hadar Ooh. until he dies, basically. And so, yeah, a lot of it's off screen because, again, it's you know not like a violent show, but it's implied that he survives for like 27 days just like fighting guy after guy. And they're like... Okay, look, we've kind of had it th- at this point. Like, we, we we planned on killing you this way. Like, you would eventually like fall, but you've like killed or incapacitated like most of us. So, I guess we're just gonna kill you now. Oh, there's got to be a movie we could tie that to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. How do you, do you have anything for shields? There's not really a lot of shields that really get used in this, you know, because um, the the ship is at rest and it's got to be turned off because of this, you know, the Baryon sweep. Um, if you added shields, I don't know, maybe there'd be some kind of way that they could avoid the, the sweep. I, I, it doesn't get really, um, it doesn't get really highlighted, but you know, at one point they have a device that's supposed to protect them while the sweep comes through, uh, which Picard, you know, takes out. So now the terrorists are, you know, worried cause they've got to get there faster than before, but it doesn't seem like it FFs, Fs up their plan all that much. Like they were kind of all ready to go. So for me, it's like the ticking clock in the episode is this sweep is starting at the back of the ship and coming to the front. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what keeps all of our characters on the move. And I think if you had a show that like if this happened on a modern show, well, now I'm thinking about Discovery. <laughs> I was going to say that if, if this happened on a modern show where we know like exactly like the layout of the ship and you can look at things online, like back in the day, they were content to just say, well, don't worry about where the bathrooms are, you know, and it was a little more nebulous as to what was where. Yeah. But if you did this in like a movie today, like a submarine movie where it's sinking like deck by deck, they would show us where everything is in like an establishing shot. And then we would know exactly what the characters need to, where they need to go, what ladders they need to take. Now he's taken the rungs off the ladder. So it's like, now we got to do something else. I wish that had been a little bigger part of the episode because that thing is like interesting it's really like thrilling to see how they get from point a to point b it's it's not like completely laid out but like you do get that feeling in die hard a little bit like i do get a sense of the where they are yeah which is that's something uh some of these other knockoff movies lack sometimes (laughs) yeah especially early on when he's in the situation where he's um he goes to the roof to make the call, but then the guys go up and they spend like 15 minutes just him escaping the roof, basically. And that's how he ends up in the uh, in the air vents. Yeah. Yeah. So like everything just feels so connected, like even if yeah. even if you're like, I can't picture the actual layout in my head, it just like it felt natural. Well, I think we've covered just about everything. I think before we go, though, we should uh, put these two properties, Die Hard and Starship Mine, in the arena and see who walks away. Which one's better? What do you think? It's like, think of Sunkatsu. Think of The Rock with an appliance (laughs) on his forehead ready to fight a Borg drone. You know, I, I think Die Hard is better 
just as a as a, as what it's trying to be like a thrill ride, you know, yeah, kind of thriller movie. Um, but the, I thought this is a really good this is a really good episode of Next Gen, despite some of the flaws we pointed out. I still had a lot of fun with it and everything. But I'll I'll say Die Hard. I'd have to agree. I, it's I mean it's Die Hard, it's, right? Yeah, like, you don't people you don't hear about Starship Mine on a blank. Uh, although it is a good, like, well-executed episode, and it doesn't have anything to do with anything. Like, it just, we go on to the next week, and it's not like it affects anything. But, yeah, it's kind of fun. It's fun to see, you know, Captain Picard kick a little ass <laughs> and kind of get out there and do what other characters would be doing. I was trying to think of, like, other examples where Trek had used a diehard formula, and I couldn't think of anything. Um, there's, like, one episode hmm. of DS9 where Chief O'Brien has been cloned. It's a long story. And for some reason, everybody has to pretend the clone doesn't know he's a clone. He's like a sleeper agent and everybody's got to pretend that he's the real thing. And I think at one point they do bring the hammer down and he uses the knowledge that he has from O'Brien to open and close different, you know, maintenance shafts or like force fields. And he kind of like does a vent thing and like gets out of DS9 that way. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of good examples of like. I don't know, like tense action sort of situations, you know, obviously. Yeah. Um, this this isn't like one to one, especially because it it's predates it. But like just some of the the like drama and like the ups and downs of of who's who's uh, who's in control and all that stuff uh, made me think of Wrath of Khan a little bit. Yeah. Like I said, it's not like a guy stuck in a situation. It's more of like a, a ship battle, but just some of the, yeah, some of the tension and the building and stuff felt very, you know, it was just good action storytelling or whatever. And having two people at either end of it who are sort of sparring uh, with words and with intellect and like strategy and uh, for a lot of the film referencing old media. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yippee ki yay. Yippee ki <laughs> It looks like Die Hard then walks out of the arena to fight another day. Uh, that's it for this week's Backtrekking. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you like the show, tell a friend. And you can follow us at, at Backtrekking on Twitter. And tell us, too, what you think we should look at in future episodes. You know, we're just getting started. So, you know, we don't have anywhere else to send you right now. Uh, but in the future, we will. But as always, you can like and subscribe. Uh, wherever you find us on the internet. And we'll see you again soon. Gooey, tell the people where they can find you online. Uh, you can find me at Gooey Fame. Uh, you can find my other shows at Virtual Theater X, at uh, EIF Pod, and at PWRV Podcast. And I'm at, at Caliban. That's Caliban with a one and seven L on Twitter. And you can find my other stuff at, at Just Enough Trope on Twitter. And that's it for us. We'll see you soon. And keep on trekking. <laughs>